everybody. Tyler Smith here. More than one lesson mini-sode number 37. Uh, it's been a while since we've recorded, actually. Uh, last week, for those that don't know, uh, we did not put out an actual episode because we just couldn't make the, the scheduling work to record. Uh, but instead, I posted the uh, audio from the panel uh, of, that I was a part of at the Mountaineer Short Film Festival. Uh, there is actually also video of that now, both of the, both of which you can find at more than one lesson.com. Uh, the audio is also in the feed. So if you haven't listened to it, please do. It was great. It was a lot of fun. Um, I got to meet some people, uh, both listeners and then, uh, the guys I was on the panel with, uh, are both filmmakers, uh, who are very, uh, intelligent and insightful and funny. And it was just, it was really great to meet all the people that I did. And so you can find that, uh, on the website and in the uh, podcast feed. So, uh, a few other announcements. Um, there's a somewhat recent article written by Reed Lackey about the television show Lost. Uh, it seems like an odd thing to, to be writing about now, but uh, it, it recently hit the, uh, the 10th anniversary of the show starting. So there was, I think it, uh, at Paley Fest, I think it was a function of Paley Fest, uh, they had various cast members and crew members that, audi- that the audience could meet, and there was discussion about it. And so uh, Reed, being a huge fan of Lost, uh, wrote a, fair, a very in-depth article about that. So, so you can go to morethanonelesson.com uh, about that. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Um, oh, okay. I will say, this is not a thing that we put out very often. So, uh, hopefully you take it with a grain of salt cause it's never fun hearing something like this. But what I will say is, uh, we do at more than one lesson, we do accept donations, um, of whatever amount, uh, the listener is comfortable giving, um, the, I, and we don't really put it out there very much because I do consider it something of a labor of love and, and, and it is Christian and it's, uh, in its motives. Uh, and so, um, so I don't, I'm not totally comfortable asking everybody else to pay for it. But what I will say is that, uh, beyond the basic fees of hosting the the podcast and, and the cost that it, you know, the, the money that it costs to make sure that all the episodes are available. Um, aside from that, which I'm comfortable spending money on, uh, there are also the costs of going to see movies and, it seems more and more these days that there are movies that are very relevant to more than one lesson, as you will find out next week and the week after. Um, and Josh and I want to see those in a timely fashion so that by the time, because often what will happen is by the time we're able to see a movie, um, and I say that as though like movies don't come to Los Angeles, they do, but it's just, you know, you only have so much money in the old entertainment budget. And if it's between seeing, you know, uh, a, a low budget Christian film or seeing something that frankly, more people are talking about, I usually have to go with that one partially because battleship pretension, my other podcast takes priority. Um, but we still want to be able to weigh in on the conversation, uh, at a time when other people are. And so if you go to more than one lesson.com and click, 
if you if you scroll down to the right, there will be a, a link to our PayPal account, and you can donate whatever you like. Uh, we would really appreciate it. Uh, a few people have already, and it has enabled Josh and I to see, for example, a little preview of the next couple weeks. It has enabled Josh and I to see uh, Darren Aronofsky's Noah, as well as, I do not remember the name of the director, who did God's Not Dead. Something Kronk. Harold Kronk. Uh, he directed... A uh, Christian film called God's Not Dead that is making a fair amount of money and people are talking a lot about. So uh, so people's donations, they are being used directly for the show so that we can bring you more content. And so anything that you could do would be uh, greatly appreciated. I think that might be it. Um, and I will welcome in my co-host, Josh Long. Josh. Hello. Yes. Yeah. Hi. Hi. How's it going? How you doing? Good. All right. Good. I started to laugh there when you started talking about Lost because it, it uh, reminded me of something funny I saw on Twitter the other day. Okay. Which was that uh, Tim Heidecker tweeted about the uh, the Malaysian flight that, that went down. Ah, yes. Said, I'll bet the plane is crash landed on an island somewhere that is hell or heaven or purgatory or something like that, <laughs> which was was funny enough. But then someone responded to that. Someone retweeted to him. You basically just described the plot of Lost. Huh. He retweeted. He he retweeted what they said, and then he responded to them saying, "I don't know what that is." <laughs> Man, it is astounding. Like if somebody is following Tim Heidecker, it stands to reason they recognize humor when they hear it. <laughs> and Apparently not. Yeah, that happens a lot. Like he pretty often will say stuff like that, and then people people say stupid things back to him, like they don't understand that it's a joke, or like they'll explain something to him. It happens to me every once in a while on Facebook, but it's a little bit more. It's more understandable because I do not put myself out there as a comedian, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, Obviously, I, I don't endorse his making light of this uh, this uh, disappeared plane and the, uh, you know, condolences go out to the loved ones. But, uh, and that sounded, uh, it is something that actually does bother me. The idea of some of people just disappearing, like, and then, like, the loved ones, like, not knowing. Do they still have no idea? I haven't kept up with I think I think they I think they've been able to piece some some information together and 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 figure out what happened, but I don't think they've recovered anything. Hmm. And so... Um, yeah, and I, I haven't been keeping up with the story, uh, but yes. Uh, but what I will say is that uh, yes, that is uh, what he what his initial tweet was funny and it was fine. But boy, oh boy, the uh, sometimes sometimes uh, you know listeners or followers or whatever they just give you a gift of like here's more comedy <laughs> that you don't even have to work for. Um, but anyway, so uh, all right. So as I said, uh, the next two weeks. Uh, starting next week, sorry. Uh, next week and the week after, we will be doing... The plan right now is to do full episodes, uh, not mini-sodes. Um, because between those, and then we also have an interview coming up, like, we've got we've got a lot of episodes planned. And, uh, and my concern is that if we space them out the way we always do, which is with a mini-sode in between, that uh, certain episodes that are a bit more timely will suddenly become kind of obsolete. And so next week and the week after, we will be having uh, full-length episodes, and then there will probably be a mini-sode, and then there will be uh, the interview. So uh, so that's the plan for the – and I'll go ahead and say next week we're going to be talking about Darren Aronofsky's Noah. 
So if you haven't seen it, uh, feel free to go watch it and uh, so that you can uh, listen and uh, not worry about spoilers, which is a weird thing to say about uh, a biblical mm-hmm. adaptation. But um, there, there's some stuff there's that will catch you yeah, by surprise. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so, uh, but yeah, this week we're going to continue our mini-sode series on the best pictures. Uh, and we are going to talk about a movie that uh, we have already done an episode about. So you can go back and listen to that if you want a more in-depth discussion of, of it, because I think that episode is close to two hours long. I might be wrong about that. But uh, So we're going to be talking about the Coen Brothers' No Country for Old Men, which came out in 2007. Mm-hmm. And I will use this opportunity, by the way, as, as far as uh, asking for money, uh, over Battleship Pretension, uh, we recently recorded a premium episode, which features David, yes. myself, a friend of this show, J- uh, Jason Eakin, and then my friend uh, Scott Nye, and we talked about the year 2007 and all the great movies that came out in that year. Uh, and so you can get that at uh, BattleshipPretension.com. It costs $1.29, and it go. is two hours and 50 minutes long. So I feel like that... I feel like you get your money's worth, at least time-wise. I'll, I'll quote Napoleon Dynamite and say, that's like a dollar an hour. So, yeah. Uh, so, one one thing, if you listen to the past minisodes about the best pictures, you will hear a pretty consistent refrain of, does this movie deserve to be considered the best movie of that year? Mm-hmm. The answer, so far, for you and I, has, has been mostly no. Um, in fact, I think... Mostly no. Has there been one that we've... There are some that we're okay with. I think we were okay with Hurt Locker. I think we were okay with The Artist. Yeah. Uh, but of course, compared to other things nominated that year, I think yeah. we, we prefer, like, I think we both preferred Inglorious Bastards to Hurt Locker. I think mm-hmm. we both preferred Tree of Life to The Artist. And so, um, but I think this is the first year, uh, 2007, going backwards. Mm-hmm. I think this is the first year where the thing that won, admittedly, I'm I'm torn in two. Uh, because No Country for Old Men was nominated the same year as There Will Be Blood. And uh, it was one of those where if either one of them had won, I'd be like, all right, that's that's fine. Because those two, along with maybe a, a couple other movies, including uh, Zodiac, which got completely shut out at the Oscars, mm-hmm. um, I think those are astounding, wonderful, perhaps life-changing films uh, <laughs> that absolutely deserve to be considered the best of the year. And of course you can only uh, assign it to one. And so I'm perfectly fine with them assigning it to uh, no country for old men. It is indeed mm-hmm. a wonderful film that I think in our episode, I think I might've described it as perfect, which is not something I say very often. Mm-hmm. I think everything that it is trying to do, it succeeds in doing uh, from an artistic standpoint from a thematic standpoint, I think it is just, you, you would be hard pressed to find a movie directed with more of a sure hand than no country for old men. And of course that's pretty consistent with almost every Coen brothers movie, but not necessarily. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to think of a movie like this ever being like worked on. It just seems like, it's such an extension of the will of admittedly perhaps like Cormac McCarthy, but then the Coen brothers themselves, it just seems like such an extension of what they want that it's hard to imagine sitting down with storyboards. (laughs) Like somehow it seems, yeah, seems sacrilegious to think of it like that. (laughs) Well, and the story fits so well with kind of their, their general style 
and they're uh, the the themes that tend to run through most of their films. Yeah. So it was it was like a weird a weird combination that somehow almost as if it had to happen eventually. And it's and it's so interesting if you look at the career of the Coen brothers. Um, I there's something in me that naturally feels like if there's a filmmaker working now who actually started working in my lifetime, uh, I part of me I, I'm reluctant to say oh they're one of the best you know this person is one of the best filmmakers of all time and will always be remembered. It's hard for me to say that unless it's somebody like a Tarantino who admittedly doesn't work very often. Um, you know, he would take long breaks in between his films. And so there is kind of, so anytime he, anytime a movie of his arrived, it was kind of an, an event. Yeah. The Coen brothers work so consistently that some of the movies are amazing and some are not so amazing. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like, and, and they tended to embrace such a silliness at times that, I don't know. They seem to exist somehow outside. They were like a third party candidate uh, (laughs) in the world of film where when you talk about the best directors working now, I don't it's I don't think of them, even though they are Mm -hmm. in the same way that like if somebody asks you, hey, what's your favorite book of all time? Do you have an answer? Mm, the answer should be the Bible, but of course you're not going to say that, are you? Because it almost goes without saying. It's almost just assumed. Um, and like, so these are the, the, this is how I think of the Coen brothers. They're basically like the the Bible Bible of 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 filmmakers. Uh, and so like, they just seem to exist separately for me. And so, um, so it's hard to, it's hard to think of them as like filmmakers that, do what every other filmmaker does, which is they write scripts. They're inspired by things. Sometimes it's an an original screenplay, whatever. And then they just go about realizing that. And to my knowledge, they have complete uh, creative control, right? And have for a long time. I'm sure they do at this point, at least. Um, I don't know. I don't know when they hit that point, but you know, they, they make so many movies that are successful on not just artistically, but also commercially. So when you're at the point where you can make, commercial and critical successes uh having done for uh as long as they have the directing and the writing and the editing it's kind of like just let them just give them the money (laughs) and they'll come back with something but of course not every movie of theirs is a uh at this point they're kind of they have awards prestige no matter what Mm -hmm. but not every movie of theirs is a even when you kind of assume it not every movie of theirs achieves that nor does it achieve financial success immediately not every single one but i mean they make more than a comparable film would make made by unknown directors or smaller directors absolutely and even somebody like a like a paul thomas anderson uh who is considered like uh, by me certainly uh among the best directors working now um even his movies don't do remarkably well uh, box office wise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think they are, you know, certainly a movie like true grit, uh, I think did quite well, but yeah. I'm not sure how a serious man did. <laughs> um, and I don't know how inside Lewin Davis did, but anyway, so, um, it is interesting to, when you start talking about the Coen brothers, or at least when I do, I have a tendency to think about their career in general, as opposed to talking about one particular film. Mm-hmm. And, but with No Country for Old Men, it comes at such an interesting point in their career because they had just come off of 
some movies that aren't that great. Mm-hmm. They'd come off Intolerable Cruelty, mm-hmm. The Lady Killers, which both movies have good things in them, but the movies themselves are not that great. And I'm sure a number of people, I think I might be repeating what somebody said in, a, in the BP 2007 episode, but I think a lot of people thought, all right, Coen Brothers have run their course. They peaked in 96 with Fargo. Yeah. They put out some okay things since then. Oh, Brother Arthur was a big hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, but I think, uh, and then like they did like Man Who Wasn't There, Intolerable cru- Intolerable Cruelty, The Lady Killers. It seemed like, all right, so they're now delving into movies that inspired them when they were younger and that's all they're going to keep they're just going to keep doing that yeah was was lady killers the one right before no country for all men yeah it was, it was 2004 then there's a three-year yeah, break I guess it was. okay and uh, for some reason i feel like there's something in between but i guess not and um, i'm not sure what happened in that three years but they came raging back yeah i know with this amazing film and what's more is they seemed th- there's they put out something of a trilogy over the course of three years they had No Country for Old Men, Burn After Reading, and A Serious Man. All three movies thematically, I think, linked through a fair amount of cynicism and world weariness. Mm-hmm. Very different genres, very different tones. Yeah. But I don't know. But I, I find myself wondering if something happened after the Lady Killers, Not ne- maybe not necessarily in their lives, but like if they underwent like just a creative paradigm shift and, and thought like, we need to do something here. We need to explore this thing. Yeah, it could be. Cause I feel like inside the one Davis kind of follows that same tag mm-hmm. too. I don't, I don't think I'd say true grit does, but then again, that's a, that's a remake. So that could be why. Right. And it's, but even that has a, a mournful quality to it. I mean, it's humorous at bit. times, but I mean, you know, when certainly more so than the lady killers or something. Right. So, right. Um, did they put out something in between True Grit and an, uh, and uh, Inside Llewyn Davis? That's a three-year gap. I feel like I'm missing something. I don't, I don't think so. Okay. All right. Maybe not. But, um, but yeah, so, uh, so I realize we're talking around No Country for Old Men, and it's partially because we've already we've done a whole episode. We've talked about so much, yeah. Um, but what I will say is that uh, as a film, it is – I'll say this – I'll stay away from any kind of thematic things explored because you can go and find our episode and we go into a great deal of detail about that. Yeah. Um, so I'll just talk about it from a, a technical standpoint. Um, it is gorgeous while being often quite ugly. It takes place mm-hmm. in Texas um, in the seventies where nobody looked good. Um, and, and things happen in the desert. There's also, there's often unspeakable violence. Um, and you would think that there would not be much of an opportunity to show to to represent things in a beautiful way. Mm-hmm. And I I don't think you come away from that movie saying, "Oh, it's beautiful," but it's striking. It's visually striking. Yeah, and very sparse at times. Whether yeah. you're in, whether you're in a building or in the middle of the desert, there's a, a very uh, just pervasive loneliness throughout it all. Yeah, I think so. And uh, some some of that visual consistency is due to the Roger Deakins yeah. cinematography. I mean, he's always been in all of the movies that he's worked with them, which has been a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, those that's always been fantastic. So, um, yeah, kind of the, the stark harshness of that landscape is something that really, that, that I think backs up the thematic, the thematic elements of the, 
of the story and the character elements. I mean, these characters, uh, the main three, but basically every character in it has experienced things in their life, whether as a function of things they've done or just things that have happened that they have witnessed. Uh, there is a starkness to their experiences and the way that they now approach life. Um, that the film certainly that the visual look of the film certainly mirrors. Um, and so in watching it, you often, I often feel like I'm looking at sort of the, the seedy underbelly of life that there are people for whom traditional ideas of happiness are just not an option. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we, you know, we see uh, married couples who seem to genuinely love one another and, and care for one another, and and that's fine. But you also there is some fatalism going on, mm-hmm. um, and they seem to take a certain degree of comfort in the love that they have found, but it's only going to go so far. Um, yeah, but the love is still genuine; it's still very real. Yeah, the love is still genuine, but I think it that's put in contrast to this world that's kind of devolving into chaos. Yeah. And which is a, a, a note that's also played in Fargo. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, you know, this idea that despite their, you know, their love for each other, despite, despite the good things in those people's lives, the world where those good things happen is slowly dissolving and is slowly becoming a thing of the past in a way. Although, uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, I keep mentioning the, uh, that 2007 premium episode of battleship mm-hmm. <laughs> available for one, uh, 29. Um, but it's because it's very much in my mind and it's, and it's interesting. My co-host David, uh, has a different read on, on the film a little bit. I mean, obviously he's not saying it's a upbeat film, mm-hmm. but that especially when, because we're seeing it through Tommy Lee, the, the eyes of Tommy Lee Jones, um, that and the story that he tells at the beginning and it and just the things that he's witnessed at the end um that things actually aren't really getting worse that they've just always been like this now there's a there's it's it's either one cynical take or another yeah well i i think i think both of those reads can exist simultaneously in the film because i think that uh the what i was saying a moment ago is kind of what the characters are feeling. Mm-hmm. They're feeling like they have this, they have good things, but the world is coming to be a place where it's right. Where good is no longer around, but there's also kind of a realization. I think especially for Tom Lee Jones character, kind of at the end, sort of through the dreams that he talks about as well, yeah. that that's just, the, that's what the world is. And that's yeah. because of evil in the world as personified by Anton Sugar. Yeah. And, and just the fact that like he is, he personifies evil, but there's plenty of other evil, violent characters. It's worth noting that, you know, a a character that we care a great deal about is killed in the film, but not by Anton Chigurh and not even on screen by just a separate band of selfish murderers, you know? And he also wouldn't have gotten into this situation at all if he hadn't been a little bit selfish himself. Exactly. And so, um, so yeah, it is it is a deeply cynical film and one could make the argument that it's a hopeless film, but I don't get that vibe either. Like cynicism is not quite the same as hopelessness Mm. and it doesn't strike me as necessarily as a nihilistic film either. There does seem to be in the midst of it, 
like genuine humanity, mm-hmm. which is something that astounds me that the film can achieve the tone that it does while still having characters that I care about, feel like I know, and through them, I have a certain degree of hope. Like I am rooting for, well, you're certainly rooting. You're always rooting against Anton Chigurh because he's just like, like, I don't want this person to win. <laughs> uh, but any film that adopts the, that attempts to adopt the tone that no country for old men does, it's hard to root for anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, we we're sort of, uh, there's a thing that I've said in the past, uh, about various movies where it's like, in the end, I'm rooting for the idea of hope and, uh, civility. <laughs> like I'm, I'm rooting for concepts, certainly for these people to embrace them, but for the concepts themselves as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a, a tightrope that, that the Coens are, are walking because if they go too far in either direction, uh, you know, then I no longer care because who cares about anything anymore? Right. Or if they go too far in the way of like including humanity and hope, then it starts to feel disingenuous. And I feel like they're not schmaltzy. Yeah. And I feel like they're not committing to, they're they're not really exploring the ramifications of the world that they're, that they've created. Right. Um, I'm sorry, you were going to say something. I think I was just about to say, and like the, the, possibly just the major theme of the book on in, in the broadest sense is just the nature of evil in the world and the existence of evil in the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I feel like, I think I said in the episode that I feel like the movie perfectly captures the tone of the book. Like, I don't feel like that happens very often. Mm-hmm. And though there's stuff that they left out as you often have to, I feel like that, um, granted you have to look at it as just a movie and not an adaptation but if you are choosing to look at it as an adaptation i think it's one of the best adaptations that i know of yeah and and there are some who say because it is in many ways uh a uh a pretty straightforward adaptation like they left in a lot including they let certain descriptions in the book dictate what the camera is going to be so it's not even just dialogue and story yeah um and so some would say, oh, well, that's just, they're just letting the book do the work for them. It's like, first off, that's not at all true. Uh, and secondly, I don't know, that's part of adaptation is knowing something's good when you see it and yeah. recognizing that something can be realized visually. Well, I'll, I'll, right. That, that, that argument that people would have suggests that there is no work in adapting. Yeah. That there is no work in creating that, that visual world that already exists in in the book like that certainly takes a great deal of work it reminds me of when people say that an actor is just playing himself in every role and it's just like do you realize how hard it is to be naturally yourself in front of a camera in totally alien situations yeah and so uh so yeah it, it that's the thing is perhaps that's the, the effortlessness of it and mm-hmm. and the knowledge that oh well this thing existed already and it seems the same. So it must not have been very hard to do. It's like, well, no, it's one could say doubly hard Mm -hmm. because I mean, how many movies do you know, adapt a book and capture that spirit exactly while also remaining a satisfying film. Right. You know, I can't think of very many myself. I mean, I'll go with the Maltese Falcon because that is a, that is a very close adaptation. That's a pretty good adaptation too. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it's, you know, it's written 
beautifully. And I don't know how much, having not read the book, I don't know how much was lifted directly from the book, but I think it's written very well. Um, I think the acting is uniformly astounding. Um, I'm very excited that uh, with this film, it sort of re-energized the career of Josh Brolin, who I think, uh, yeah. I'm not sure if he has quite delivered on the promise of that film. The next year he was in Milk mm-hmm. uh, and was nominated for it for supporting actor, and he is quite good in it. Yeah. Um, was W the year after that? or uh, Yes, W was in 2008, and he was very good in that as well. Um, I never saw but yeah, and so it's, it's, uh, but that doesn't really matter. Like, frankly, when it comes down to it, when people think back on Josh Brolin, they will think of, well, obviously they're going to think of the Goonies and <laughs> then they will think, and then distant second, they'll think of no country for old men. Um, but yeah. And so, so what's that movie with the guy from the Goonies? Oh, no country for old men. <laughs> um, but, uh, but then it's yeah. like, Oh wait, I thought you, I thought you were talking about Lord of the Rings, the movie with the guy from the Goonies. Sean, uh, Sean Astin is there. You guys in both, um, um, but the, yeah, the and football s- guy. Yeah, right. Yes, the football guy, the small football guy. <laughs> um, no, but then also uh, the other, uh, the movie also brought to American audiences Javier Bardem, and that's yeah, been great. <laughs> and I and I had. I had been aware of him for a while. I had seen him in his... He was first nominated for an Oscar in 2000 for a movie called uh, Before Night Falls. Mm. Did you ever see it? I haven't seen that one. It's very good, and he is wonderful in it. The first I saw him was in The Sea Inside, which is another... I assume Before Night Falls is a Spanish film? Oh, yes. Yeah, and as was The Sea Inside. Or is it? Hang on now. I might be wrong. Yeah, I think I am wrong, actually. it's. I, I honestly don't remember much about it except his performance. Mm. And do you ever find... When you're watching a foreign film and you remember it, you don't remember it in another language? If it was a good one, sometimes, yeah. Okay. <laughs> a, a lot of Bergman ones, actually, I don't remember. Like, even though I obviously know they're in Swedish, sometimes yeah. I can look back on them and think of them as being in... Uh, the right language. <laughs> English. The best language. The, yeah. the weird one is that I remember thinking back on uh, um, Fitzcarraldo and, and thinking of it in English... And then thinking to myself, well, clearly it's in German because it's a, uh, it's a Herzog film, but then it is in English. When I went back to watch it and it was in English, I was like, am I watching the wrong version? <laughs> and no, that's, um, sorry. I'm looking up uh, before night falls, even though I don't necessarily have to. Um, it is, uh, okay. Well, uh, yeah, it's, I think it kind of goes back and forth because it was directed by Julian Schnabel. Oh, okay. Who went on to do, uh, the diving bell and the butterfly. Yeah. Is it um, French maybe then? Well, it says language. It says English, Spanish, Russian, and French. So a little wow. something for everybody. Johnny okay. Depp's in the movie. Um, but uh, but yeah, and and I remember thinking he was wonderful in that. And I had seen him. Uh, he's in like a one scene. Uh, he's wonderful in it. He's in one scene of the Michael Mann film Collateral. Really? Uh, I don't remember that. That would be interesting to go back and see now. Yeah, he's like the, the crime boss huh. um, who is employing uh, Tom Cruise's character. And... Uh, and I remember being like, Oh, that's the guy from before night falls. Wow. He's really good in this. Mm-hmm. And then, and then in no country for old men, what a hard, what, what a virtually impossible character to play. Yeah. Because he's almost just like, all right, Hey, uh, uh, Javier, you're going to be playing an idea. Is that all right? <laughs> yeah. You're going to be playing a concept, but you have to make that concept seem real, but not too real. 
it, and it was as if he was like, that sounds like fun and then did it. Yeah. Amazingly. Yeah. It's, it's astounding. And, and it's hard, you know, and that's the thing when watching his character, like sometimes I'm uncomfortable. Sometimes I, uh, I have a hard time watching him because I have a hard time latching on to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and the character's not that different than the Joker who would come a year later in the dark yeah. night. The character's not that different. And yet somehow he's just so intangible as a character. Mm-hmm. But of course the threat is a hundred percent real. Right. Which he um, makes, which he makes very clear. Indeed. Uh, and so, uh, so the acting is great all around. I will also mention Tommy Lee Jones, who, uh, he was in this year. He was in this movie the same year as he was in a film called, uh, in the Valley of, uh, Elah, which the movie itself is fine. Uh, but he's amazing in it. Um, and he's an actor speaking of people who say, Oh, well they only ever play themselves. Like, especially these days you could make the argument that, Oh, Tommy Lee Jones, he's just doing the same thing over and over. It's like, uh, I don't agree. Uh, I think he changes things. I mean, this character is notably different than the character he played in Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, uh, or that movie where he was like in charge of a sorority for a full of cheerleaders for some reason. Ah, uh, yes. I believe it's called man of the house, man of the house. And it's interesting. I believe that came out the year before, uh, the three burials of Melchiatus Estrada, which he directed. And part of me is like, okay, I think I see where the money for this movie came from. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah. And so, uh, so he, and he has a hard job too. all the, all the, and I, one could say this is a function of Cormac McCarthy. Every character has the weight of being themselves and representing something as well. Mm-hmm. And with, Tommy Lee Jones character, like he has to represent a certain worldview. Mm -hmm. He has to be our introduction into this world so that we can see things through his somewhat jaded eyes, which is partially, I think why so much of it can be funny because when you've lived as long as he has, and you've seen the things he has, you kind of have to laugh at things to make it okay a little bit. Yeah. To keep your sanity. And this again, maybe something that I said in the, uh, in the other episode, but Cormac McCarthy's characters in general seem to, no matter how many bad things kind of come their way, they always seem to just, there's a weird acceptance with which they approach mm-hmm. all of those things. And I feel like Josh Brolin's character is like that. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones' character is like that. Anton Shakur, because he's almost not like a real person, yeah. of course, is like that. He accepts things the way a bulldozer accepts, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the things in front of it. He's much like the Terminator. <laughs> um, but but I, I really like the the way they realize those characters, specific, specifically Josh Brolin and, and uh, Tommy Lee Jones, that they, they have that same sort of stoic acceptance. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no... <laughs> It's it's weird. It is almost like that kind of stereotypical manhood. Yeah. Just like seeing things and being like, all right. Yeah. Like that's just the kind of the answer, the stone faced. All right. And that, that's the way they react to a lot of these situations. And that, that is consistent with the way a lot of Cormac McCarthy, Cormac McCarthy's characters are not just in no country for old men. And that would, books. and that would also explain one of the reasons the the Coen brothers were attracted to it. Because yeah. if you look at a lot of their movies, not all of them, yeah. but if you look at a lot of their movies, their characters tend to, even if they, even if they sometimes put up a, a little bit of a, of a stink, they tend to just kind of, for lack of a better term, go with the flow. Yeah. Uh, and you could say that that means they're sort of accepting their circumstances, whether it be 
uh, Marge Gunderson. I think, yeah, I think or, Marge Gunderson um, fits in that. Um, Ed, certainly Peter Stormare's character does, but then again, he <laughs> is, may also be that sort of yeah. non-human character. But like Ed Crane, certainly in The Man Who Wasn't There, mm-hmm. he's like that. I think even the dude is like that. Like he puts up a lot of, he puts up a fair amount of stink when things don't go his way, but that's, that's a little bit different because if an opportunity falls into his lap, he'll be like, yeah, all right, sure. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> which is why he ends it. up in all the places that he does. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I think there's a, there's a number of reasons why this book appealed to the Coen brothers and why they felt they had to make it, mm-hmm. um, and really invest a lot of themselves in it, I think. Um, and so we, we should start wrapping up. Um, as I said, uh, to put it in, in Oscar context, uh, that was back when there were five nominees. Um, mm-hmm. So the nominees were, if I'm not mistaken, No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood, Michael Clayton, Juno, and I think Atonement. Um, I'm a big fan of Michael Clayton. I think that's a, 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 at this point, I think it's kind of a great movie. Um, hmm. I'm not a fan of Juno, and I there are parts of Atonement I like. I like the first yeah. 45 minutes. I think those are great. Yeah, I, I, Atonement's another one that... I, I kind of felt that same way about the book. I read the book and then that mm. was the part that was most interesting to me. And then once it got out of that, yeah. of course, sort of out of the manor house, I, it was not as interesting to me. Yeah. Which I don't know exactly why that is, but the movie kind of played out the same way, which is interesting. Yeah. And so, it, hey, there's that's a great adaptation of that book in the sense that it <laughs> captures your frustration the same way. Um, and so, yeah, it's and that's the thing is what's interesting is that and this happens a lot. We'll get to this when we get to 1999 as well. Um, 2007 was such a great year. It seems almost appropriate that of the best picture nominees, two of them are some of the best movies you've ever seen. One of them solid. The other two, you're like, what? And Juno was made a big splash at the time, but you don't hear much. You don't hear people really talk about it anymore, which surprises Not me. Not so much. It was. It was a. It was kind of one of those flash in the pan sort of things. Not, yeah. I, I don't know if that's exactly the right term for it, but it was it was hot at the moment. It spoke yeah. to a very uh, – it was very topical. It was very current, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I, and I don't know of anybody that would cite Juno as a movie that they really love uh, even now. I mean I think – I don't know. It's hard to say because I don't love it. To my knowledge, you don't love it. My other co-host, David, didn't love it. My friend Jason didn't love it. Uh, some of us actually quite quite disliked it. Um, and so it's hard to say. I would like to talk to somebody who genuinely did love it and ask them, what do you think of it now? And I wouldn't be surprised if they said, well, I don't think of it now. Um, yeah. But of course, that's, that's, that's completely hearsay on my part. Um, and so, uh, but I mean... Some of the you know some of the movies that came out that year. You've got Zodiac, which I think is astounding. You've got, and that's the thing. As I list these movies, none of them seem like best picture material, <laughs> even even a nomination. Yeah. Zodiac maybe. Mm-hmm. Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. No. Yeah. It's like if we, it's like all right, we'll cap. It's like we we've got our pseudo western with no country for old men. Thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, and speaking of which, three ten to Yuma. Um, oh yeah. And then, but I, it's it's I'm having a hard time even remembering a lot of them. I mean, I'm a big fan of. I love Ratatouille. I love the Savages. The I Savages love, was one I liked a lot. Yeah. Uh, Again, that's one that doesn't seem like best picture material, right? 
it's too it's too small scale. Although maybe in a year where there was ten, it might have been. Maybe it's hard. Because now say. we see more of those happen, more of those kind of small scale ones. I yeah. Mean, was there one this year? Oh, probably Philomena. Yeah, yeah. Philomena. Um, Philomena. That's the one um, with John Travolta, where he can like move stuff with his mind. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, that's a dumb joke. I'm it's sorry, everybody. Um, and so, uh, so yeah. And then um, that year, probably the movie once I think would have gotten if they had expanded things to like expanded Best Picture. That movie did well. It was very well liked and well received. I feel like that Maybe one probably so. could have been included. Um, but yeah, and so, and that's the thing. This is all speculation. And when it comes right down to it, I love that No Country for Old Men won Best Picture because, in many ways, it doesn't seem like the type. It's so dark. I and actually thought it wouldn't because it was so dark. What did you think would? Because There Will Be Blood is just as That's dark. the thing. Like, those were, looking at the nominees, I was like, these are the two best movies in here, definitely. And I, I I think I felt like on the one hand, it seems like one of those would have to win because they're the best ones. On the other hand, coming on the heels of something that's kind of even stupidly feel good, like crash at Mm -hmm. times, are they going to go that dark? I mean, well, there was a one, two punch, uh, mm -hmm. of the departed and then no country for old men, both of which I under, I absolutely understand why they won. Mm-hmm. No country for old men. I love that it won. The Departed. I'm like, eh, all right, it's fine. Yeah. Whatever. It wasn't. It wasn't a super strong year anyway. But uh, but we'll talk about that in the in the next mini so in, in uh, I don't know a few weeks. Um, but yeah, it's like it almost seemed. It just doesn't have the the vibe of a best picture. If you look, I mean, you know more historically about best picture than than anybody. Mm-hmm. If there is something upbeat. They'll go with the King's Speech over Social Network. They'll yeah. go, and Social Network isn't a remarkably depressing film. No, but it tends to go. It tends to go in kind of waves too. Mm-hmm. I think there are like waves where they go sort of feel good. That's how there's a whole decade where the '60s where it was all musicals practically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. It goes it sort of goes in waves to different things. But uh, and and maybe that's why maybe that's why it did win because it was it had been one where we'd be seeing, we had been seeing stuff that was a little more upbeat, like a Chicago or like a crash isn't traditionally upbeat, but well, it's just, it's more, it's just more acceptable and you can live with it better. It, and it has, it does have kind of a feel good ending. I think, yeah. um, what well, I'm missing something in the middle. There's a well, there's million dollar million baby, dollar and baby. then there's Lord of the Rings. Uh, Lord of the Rings was always going. The third one was always going to win. It was a foregone yeah. conclusion. And um, that's a you know that's I'm trying to think if I I wouldn't label it upbeat if I was thinking of upbeat movies, but certainly more so than No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Um, and then you had it's a crowd pleaser. It's a blockbuster. Yeah. And like in Million Dollar Baby, there's a darkness to it, but there's definitely like a heart, like a real, and it's kind right. of. It's sad, but there's an inspiring quality to it. And right. then you've got a beautiful mind. You have gladiator over traffic. Right. You have, you know, and so like, it's, it's even when there are movies that are, that are darker and a little bit heavier, it's usually not this kind of dark and heavy. Right. Like even the departed is like fun, fun. Exactly. Like yeah. there's an element of it. that's an action movie. And so that like, that makes it sort of fun. So yeah. we can, we can, 
I don't know that that seems easier for people somehow or easier for the Academy maybe. Cause I'm trying to think of other ones that are as genuinely dark as no country for old men that have won. Okay. Well I've got, I, I can think of only one. Okay. But it's not as dark, but it feels similar to me in that I'm fascinated that it won. And that's mm-hmm. the French connection. The French connection is just kind of this odd exercise in genre. I don't feel like I, like, I feel like I don't really know the characters very well. I know enough about them to follow them, but like, and it ends on a really ambiguous note and this idea that like things are just going to keep going. Yeah. This is never going to end. There's not much hope to be found. And we don't even really like our protagonist in the first place. And I can think of lots of movies that get nominated that are sure. like that. Like now, admittedly, was French Chinatown Con- nominated. It was, but okay. it lost to Godfather two. Right. And not that Godfather two is a feel good movie. Right. But again, it does have kind of a fun element to it. It has a fun element. And like, because there's the family thing there it, that makes it almost a kitchen sink drama at times. Right. Yeah. Uh, especially that one. But yeah. And so there is some, there is something of an anomaly to no country for old men. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I, that I genuinely love about it. You know what? Ah, shoot. The Conversation is another one I would put in that category. I think that was nominated, wasn't it? I don't think it was. It might have been. It might have been. I don't remember. It seems odd to nominate two Coppola films in one year um, because that was also 74. I thought it was 73. No, you're thinking of Save the Tiger, (laughs) uh, which was not Uh, nominated for picture. But uh, but yeah, and so uh, we just had a very uh, nerdy exchange like in which we just (laughs) ran through things uh, off the top of our head. But that's the thing is like, if we, I'm not going to ask you to list every best picture, but a movie like No Country for Old Men winning picture, you know, because that's to to say what we often say in these minisodes. The Academy said this is the movie we want to represent us right now. Yeah, 2007. This is the one we thought was the best. Yeah. So when you look through history, you'll be like, man, what was happening in 2007? <laughs> Now, I do have a theory about that, which is that uh, the country wasn't going well. We did have a a president that was remarkably unpopular Mm. and wars that were unpopular. Mm. And of course, now, you know, if you want to look at a certain degree of like political context, things aren't going so great now. But that's almost from an economic standpoint. When you've got wars going on, that means people are dying Mm -hmm. and and possibly unnecessarily. Right. And it's I mean – there are still wars going on and people are still dying on, but it's, but it's not at the forefront of the news as it was right. then. Like in 2007, there was a, there was a ticker on, I don't remember which website it was, but one of them was like every time there'd be a new death in Iraq, it yeah. would like show up on their screen. So that yeah. was staring people in the face all the time yeah. as it isn't now and wasn't, you know, a few years before that. And what's more is like the wars at the time, certainly the war in Iraq was viewed as not merely avoidable, but completely unnecessary. And then the more, the more cynical people said, well, it was perpetrated for reason for very cynical reasons. Mm. Um, and, and so you actually, so many people thought like, well, our, our president is perpetuating violence unnecessarily. So of course, when you look at it like that, then you incorporate no country, the, the tone of no country for old men. You can see a lot of cynicism and world weariness of like, man, this is just, this is terrible. Not, no good is happening right now. Um, and I'm not saying that outlook was correct or incorrect at the moment. I try to stay apolitical when it comes to this podcast, but, um, but I do think that movies tend to reflect, uh, especially after a while, they tend to reflect, uh, the emotional tone of the, of the era. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so when you look at No Country for Old Men, not merely winning Best Picture, it wasn't an upset. Everyone knew it was going to. Yeah, it, was it was a foregone conclusion by yeah. the time it actually won. So the fact that it was the front runner and everybody assumed it, like that should tell you something about the the country in which we lived at the time. Right. And that's one of the things that I do love about uh, going through the best the best pictures. Because yeah, often we won't say, "Oh, this is the this was clearly the best movie." In fact, we were. I think we will very rarely say that. But it does give you a little snapshot of what the Academy at least wanted to communicate at the time and in retrospect. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so if you haven't seen no country for old men, I feel like we haven't actually spoiled anything about it, but my guess is you've probably seen it, but if yeah. you haven't go and uh, if you listen to this and you haven't seen it, then go and watch it and then go back and listen to our episode about it. <laughs> and then you can also read the, the article that I wrote about Indeed. It. So there's Look, a lot. You're covered. And then go buy that, that, uh, that premium episode of battleship retention.com for a dollar 29. And you can get everything you need to about this movie. Pretty much at this point. Yes. Yeah. So, um, okay. So we will end there. This episode went a little, uh, a little bit longer as I probably, as I expected from yeah. this, this, uh, this film. Um, so yeah, if you have anything to uh, to say, you can comment at, on the uh, on the post for this um, for this minisode, and you can find that at morethanonelesson.com. You can email me Tyler at morethanonelesson.com or Josh Josh at morethanonelesson.com. You can join our Facebook group where we post uh, new episodes and articles regularly. You can subscribe to our newsletter, uh, which goes out every month and just reminds you of things you might have missed on the website. Uh, I think that's about it. You can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. You can follow Josh at the Josh long at the Josh long. And yeah, thank you everybody for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.